Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. In today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Deeks. Rob is the CEO of Together As One, which is a youth-led charity bringing communities together as one through training, youth work and creative projects. Based in Slough, Together As One was previously known as, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, Ake Sath, which means Together As One in Hindi, Punjabi and Urdu. The project was established in response to gang violence between young people, formation backgrounds in Slough. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories, Rob. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for having us. No, it's great to have you on. Looking forward to to our chat and um, a little shout out and thank you to Jamie Hassan for um, putting us in touch with each other. Yeah, brilliant. Jamie's um, actually uh, one of the trustees for our charity and, um, you know, he's been such a, a massive support for our organisation over most of the last 20 years. So it was no surprise when another opportunity presented itself and that Jamie had been behind it because he's, you know, such an incredible advocate for our work. Oh, that's great. Brilliant. Okay, so um, just before we talk about Together as One, please, can you tell us a bit about yourself, you know, your life's journey and how you became involved with the charity, please, Rob? Yes, certainly. So I I grew up in Bromsgrove, which is a a town on the edge of Birmingham. Um, There's quite a few different things that would probably characterise Bromsgrove, but um, diversity isn't one of them. It's like a (laughs) very um, kind of white British area. Um, I, um, I, I had a happy, um, childhood there growing up, but I think one of the things that I really struggled with was to really know what I wanted to do with my life. I was, um, you know, I wasn't, um, academically very gifted and I found it, I found it quite hard to, to focus at school because I just didn't really, couldn't really understand what the future held for me or or see myself in any particular role. But I think one of the things that was really important to me was my values. Um, I um, uh, my stepdad came into my life when I was um, around 12, 13. But up until then, I was raised by my mom, who um, really taught me growing up um, to try, you know, wherever possible, not to be prejudiced against other people, um, to resolve your conflicts without violence and things like that. So I spent a lot of my formative years, um, you know, in school kind of being a bit of a peacemaker and, and trying to resolve conflict. And and if I felt someone was being uh, judged unfairly because of their ethnicity or their faith or something like that, I would, I would try and challenge it. But I never ever thought that, you know, you could have like a role in the world around that. And then one day I was sitting in the, um, in, in the, in the common room of the sixth form where I was failing my A-levels and um, I just saw a poster on the wall for the University of Bradford's Peace Studies Department. And um, I forget the exact wording of the poster, but it, it was essentially saying that, you know, conflict, uh, violence isn't inevitable and you and you can do positive things to, to try to prevent it. So um, suddenly I thought, wow, I, or this thing that I just do because I think it's the right thing could actually be a career. So... 
I um I applied to to Bradford and as I say because I hadn't been doing very well um at school I was amazed when they let me in because my grades fell far short um but they must have they must have seen something thank heavens because I went there and um I graduated with with the highest mark in my in my year which I think um I only mentioned really because it, it just illustrates how I went from being you know really quite lost to just finding really finding something that I was passionate about so um, after I graduated from Bradford in peace studies, um, I did a master's in violence, uh, conflicts and development at, um, at uh, SOAS in London. And then after then, I, I found myself at another juncture, really. And um, throughout um, my time, you know, while I was studying, I'd, I'd always done uh, bar work, worked in hotels. And, um, you know, without really um, knowing how to progress to the next stage I, in my career, I I kind of regressed to, to pulling pints. Uh, but my mom, who has always been a driving force in my life, I think she was getting frustrated. So she she started cutting um, adverts out of the, you know, the Society Guardian on a Wednesday yeah. and just leaving them all around the house. And I always <laughs> remember finding this one for this charity with an unusual name, Ixard, uh, um, on the stairs in a place called Slough, which at the time, um, I, I honestly couldn't have told you where it was. Um, these days, people say I could work at the Slough Tourist Board because I talked the place up so much. But at the time, I had no idea where it even was. Um, but I applied and um, I, I came down to Slough for the day to do an interview. And, and I was fortunate enough to, to get the job. And that was 20 years ago. Um, so I've been here ever since. Um, and that's really how the story of, of how I came to be here. That's that's an amazing story, Rob. I mean, I, I guess the people at the university must have seen the authenticity and the fact that you have these values, and and you actually, I think it's great how you've you've been able to um, use those values as you've grown up, get a career, and um, have a life around that. I think that's fantastic. Oh, thank you. I think one of the things that was, um, you know, quite special about. Uh, how I, how I got here and, and, and how this ended up was I was always um, I was all, always interested in other cultures as well and I think yeah. perhaps that was part of um, you know growing up in in Bromsgrove where we weren't really exposed to people from that many different backgrounds and I think um, you know when I when I graduated from the master's degree and I could see that a lot of the people that I studied with were going to you know, places all over the world. Um, you know, initially I felt a little bit like I was missing out, but one of the amazing things about Slough is that you're exposed to so many different cultures, so many different faiths, and um, and that's been a really enriching experience as well. I bet it has. Well, I, I was brought up in uh, Windsor, which was next door to Slough, and um, we always spoke about the, uh, the Betjamin poem, uh, poem, Come Friendly Bombs Fall on Slough. But I think that was down to the trading estate at the time. Yeah, I mean that that poem has, um, I think, to some extent, it's it's haunted the town and, and given it a certain level of infamy. But you know, I think that has, you know, also, you know, perhaps not for the right reasons, but put it on the map. Um, there's always great debates over, you know, the true size of Slough's population because it, it's quite a transitory population. So. A lot of the, the traditional methods of, of measuring a population don't quite work here. But for a town that, let's say, let's say it's got 150,000 people in it, 
you know, people all over the UK know Slough, you know, they've they've heard of it, if, if, even if they've never been here. And there's a lot of towns of a, of a commensurate size that people, you know, have barely heard of. Um, so yeah. it's not always for the right reasons, but there's plenty of people that have heard of Slough. You've been with the charity for 20 years. How long has the charity been going and how, how, how and why did it start, Rob? So Ixartha was established in, in 1998 because of violence within our Asian community in Slough. Um, the uh, tensions were between uh, two rival groups, uh, one called the Chalvi Boys, uh, which was uh, predominantly a, a group of young people from Pakistani backgrounds in, in Chalvi, um, yeah. and a group called Shere Punjab, which literally means Lions of the Punjab, and that was um, a predominantly uh, Sikh group, um, also Hindus within that group. Um, and and though there was factions that were from Slough, it was uh, a group that was mainly based in Southall. And um, and back then, um, there was you know really violent tensions between these groups. Uh, you know, shops were burned. You know, one young person had his hand chopped off. Um, in the in in a, in a riot, uh, a quick thinking uh, WPC put the uh, put the hand in a in an ice cream fridge in one of the shops, and they managed to to sew that back on. Um, but it just it just speaks to the level of violence that was going on between young people from these communities back then. It's interesting because I think now it it it's almost common sense to us, you know, in in twenty twenty three that. We should involve young people in the solutions to the tensions, but but back then it was it was considered quite groundbreaking in in the sense that um, you know whenever something like this, um, whenever tensions were in communities, it was always very much left to um, talking to older people to um, you know to resolve the conflict. Uh, community leaders yeah. um, were, were left to resolve them, whereas. Back then, the decision makers at the time said, "What we need to do is is really empower young people around this." Who were the people that decided to go and, and start this initiative? Well, the, one of the key individuals uh, was uh, Dr. Dudley Weeks. Um, to rewind a little bit, the tensions really got a lot of media attention, um, and I think in part because. You know, society was kind of used to seeing tensions that were between uh, white people and minority communities, but to actually have a, a really high-profile violent tension within and between uh, minority communities was considered, you know, really quite different. Um, Channel 4 picked up on these tensions and decided to make a, a documentary about them. And I think it was almost in a in a slightly tongue in cheek kind of way. They they got this American peacemaker uh, who got um, you know experience in Sudan and Somalia and Sierra Leone, uh, and dropped him off in Slough with a film crew. Um, and he had some ten he had some success at, at mediating the tensions between yeah. the gang leaders. But really, it was him that said, you know, everywhere that I've you know practiced all over the world. You know the the real lasting change has come when we've empowered local communities rather than relied on, ironically, relied on people like himself. So these these would be involving the people within the gangs themselves, would it? Yeah, or even just people from within the communities who are yeah. willing to say, you know what, this isn't 
this isn't right and, and we're going to do something about it. So fast forwarding to today, um, and thank, thank you for that little history lesson there. That was very interesting. Um, what do you do in terms of how, how, do you, how do you first become aware of tensions? Well, it, it, a lot of the time, because we work in so many different environments, um, one, of the, one of the ways that we become aware is when um, a, a school or um, a local authority or the police, um, often they're the, they're the first people to pick up on something and say, hang on, we've got an issue here. And then, uh, and that's when our phone rings, and that's when uh, an initial meeting is set up to say, "What can we do to address these tensions?" Can you and give us an example of the, of the type of tension that you you would be made aware of, please, Rob? You know, there's been so many over the years, Bob, and so many, um, so many different kinds. Of, for I mean, one of the things that would probably surprise a lot of your listeners is that a lot of the time tensions is within communities. So, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you might think to yourself, well, the tensions are going to be between, you know, um, uh, black and white young people. Actually, you know, in one school, it can be between young people from Somali and Jamaican backgrounds and another school between Polish and white British and another school between um, Muslim and Sikh. And what's interesting is when you take a step back, you know, you could say, well, actually that's conflict you know, within a black communities, within white communities, within Asian communities. And then even even further, even more sectarian, you can have a situation where, you know, within the same school, two um, rival factions of young Sikhs can fall out. So, um, you know, tension can take all forms, really. Um, and sometimes as well, it, you know, I've just outlined some that are very much identity-based. But yes. a lot of the time, you know, issues can arise um, involving youth violence where where actually ethnicity isn't an issue. It's based on, you know, a, a gang identity that transcends ethnicity or, or faith. And in an ironic way, a lot of our gangs can be very inclusive because they don't necessarily care whether a young person, you know, uh, worships one God or another or where their family heritage is. If they're around, if, you know, if they're established around criminal exploitation, all they cared about is whether the young person is disaffected enough to get involved in in that exploitation. Yeah, so there's, there's loads of different reasons for for this conflict to arise. Um, and then you're made aware of it. What happens next? I think um, I think often the temptation is to rush in somewhere, but I think one of the things that you know I think I've I've learned over time is is to is to swap around that old adage of um you know don't just do don't just stand there do something you know sometimes it's best to not just do something but stand there for a moment and and really survey what's going on because you know it's really important to to listen to to the young people um involved and find out what's going on because i mean so often we're <sighs> You know, we we rush to find solutions um, before we actually fully understand what's happening, and that can be really dangerous. So, yeah. trying to understand what's happening, try to unpick the narratives, and try to understand the roots of of where tensions have come from. And you have a team. You have a team of people within the charity who do this, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I feel so blessed by is. Um, is because we've been operating for you know such a, a good deal of time now. Um, most of the staff team 
that used to be young people on the project. So the young people who've previously given their time, volunteered, um, been a part of our programs, and now they they actually give their time and and um, you know as employees um, rather than volunteers. Yes. And, and that means that we're very locally embedded. It means that our staff team is really reflective of the community and very diverse. Um, the people involved, they've got um, at least two of them have have had loved ones that um, they've lost to um, knife crime, and so they're really have that that deep and powerful motivation to make a difference. Yeah, and um, I guess one of the first things you need to do is is to sort of gain the trust of the young people that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny, Bob, because one of the things is that, and I, I get this off a lot of people, is that, um, and I, I don't know what it is, but a lot of people think I'm uh, a policeman. Um, so, oh, what you mean, the people that you you talk to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even even more widely. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I live in the Britwell area of Slough, and um, I, uh, uh, I've. I, I guess over time I've found a place that I enjoy going back to, but for the longest time, I didn't feel any, you know, particular affinity to any special, you know, single place getting my hair cut. So I used to go to different places, but I always well found it a way of being, you know, very embedded in the community because those conversations in the hairdressers, you really understand what's going on in your local area. Yes. And I went in, um, I went in one place in, in Britwell near where I live and the guy, um, the guy I was, I was next in turn to get my hair cut, and he turned around to me and said, uh, "Are you a fed?" And um, I was shocked, at, you know, because I thought even if I was police, I'd still need to get my hair cut. <laughs> um, but there was another, there was a young person actually who I'd been talking to in in the hairdressers, and he said, "Oh no, he's a youth worker. He's he's helped me out. He's he's not police." Yeah. Um, but it just gives you an example of how, even though at times I you know, think that I've, you know, become fully embedded in this community. There's still a lot of people, you know, via appearance or, or whatever that would that would not necessarily trust me initially. Yeah. But again, you know, one of the one of the good things about, you know, staying in this role for, you know, a, a long enough time is that you you build up this cachet of trust. And thankfully, um, across there there's communities that we've been working with for so long now that you know, often um, a young person that we start engaging with, they'll say, um, "Oh, you know, my older cousin told me about you, or I used my older brother used to come to you." Um, and because of that, you you know, you have a certain level of trust um, within communities. I think also as well, you know, even doing proactive work around cohesion. You know, a lot of our communities, they, you know, there, there are kind of a lot of fly by night initiatives that come in promise the world and, and then move on. Um, and I guess we're the antithesis of this because, you know, we're, we're always here. And, and because of that, we do have a, a lot of, a lot of support from, from the wider community. Yeah. So, so the trust is already because you're all so embedded in, in the community, the trust is already there. Um, and I guess the, the very fact that you you are in business, should we say, um, although you're a charity, um, it, this is an on, this is ongoing. I mean, you, you've never got to the point where you thought, well, actually, you know, we, we've we've sorted this out in Slough. Everybody's happy. They all love each other. It's continuous. I mean, how how would you say things have evolved since you since over the last twenty years? I mean, are, are things better, worse, or about the same? 
you you hit on a really good point there, Bob, about how we've um, how we've developed and how the communities developed and and how things have changed. Um, I think one of the things that we we try to do is to proactively support young people who are vulnerable to getting involved with with problems, and and because of that, our work has developed to do a lot of work around cohesion and bringing people together that is proactive and not waiting for tensions to develop so that actually we can be a, a cohesive town and not wait for for problems to arise um a good example of that would be our our oral history work our heritage work where um from time to time we've delivered projects where we've uh, trained up young people to be kind yeah. of historians for the community and to interview community members about their lives um and one of the first projects we did on that was about um ex-indian servicemen um who'd fought for britain during the second world war because it was a, a section of slouse community that felt like they never they never had the, their stories heard and, and crucially for us it was a it was a history that brought together um um people from indian and pakistani backgrounds because of course you know when the second world war started um british india and pakistan were still the same country so british forces that took um volunteers from south asia it was it was one unified continent so there was uh, indian and, and pakistani soldiers fighting side by side and we could and we could hold that up as a, as an example of how you know our different communities could be cohesive yes but following on from that we we knew very early on that one of the big kind of causes of tension between our communities particularly south asian communities was partition and and the creator, creation of pakistan and india and when we spoke to young people there was a real sense that you know all that they really heard from the older people in their community was we suffered more than the other side uh, but without really understanding the history. Yeah. So we, we did an oral history project on that so that the young people could really understand partition and, and how those tensions developed and, and really shed, shed a light on it so that they could better understand it. Because one of the things about the past is that the more people have a shared understanding of it, the less likely it is to be manipulated by people who want to cause tensions between communities. Yes, it's, it sounds like a lot of the tensions and, and um, stuff that happens is, is formed in those early years, as you said, by you know grandfathers talking about that. And that goes right through to when they become teenagers. Yeah, and, and, and tensions become almost um, acceptable yeah. you know, in, in the home um, instead of being challenged. But... You know, we find that, you know, these kind of um, myths that we learn about each other, they, they cut across all communities. So, I mean, one of the things that we, we really enjoy doing is doing proactive cohesion work in primary schools where we train up, you know, local people to, local teenagers to be peer leaders and then take them into the primary schools in their local community and deliver workshops around um, cohesion. And we make it really fun. Um, uh, and it, but what you get to see is that young people, you know, really develop their thinking. So, but in a fun way. So, for example, one of the things that we do is is we give all of the young people um, a potato, yeah. and we say, "Look at your potato. Get to know your potato better than anyone else's potato." And you see all of these 
you know, seven, eight-year-olds really looking at their potato. And then we take them all in, we shake up this bag, and then we get them to find their potato again. Um, and then we, we get them to put their their hands in front of their potato and say, what do we have in common with them? And what they figure out is that the potatoes are all different sizes and we're all different sizes. And some of their potatoes have scars and, and some of us have scars. Yeah, and some of the potatoes are different colours and we have different colours and some of them yeah. have spots and so on. But when, when we take a couple of the potatoes and chop them in half, you know, inside we're all the same. And, yeah. and we use that, as, you know, as an analogy to talk about how, you know, in our community we're all different shapes and sizes, we're all different colours. You know, some of us have got spots and scars, but inside we're exactly the same. That's marvellous. That's a marvellous analogy. And and what type of age would the children or teenagers be when you when you work with them on that? Um, we find that year year four, year five, you yeah. can so around um, seven, eight, nine. Oh right, yeah. So um, quite young. Those young people, you know, they we can make a real difference to how they see the world yeah. and and the teenagers that we we take in. Well. We take in young people as soon as they're at secondary school, so year seven, so that would be around 11, 12 upwards. Yes. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's really special as well, and I keep going back to how long we've been doing this, is that what, what I find is that I can be in Tesco, you know, doing my weekly shop, and then I can bump into someone and um, – and they'll say you came to my you came to my primary school, and and you did this exercise with potatoes or stuff like that. And you, what's really amazing is that you find that even though the time that you spent with the young people was relatively short, that that workshop that you did with them it really spoke to them and and stayed with them, and that can be really special. Yeah, that's that's great. Just going back to um, how things have progressed. I mean. Has anybody um, measured how tensions are now, say, compared with 10 or 15 years ago? That's such a good question because we don't have um, – one of the things that I think we need, not just um, in in Slough but perhaps, you know, across the UK, is there's been different questionnaires used in the past um, to kind of understand uh, the levels of, ten- levels of tension within community – um, and how people feel around cohesion and things like that. But, um, you know, different when governments change, the measures change. Um, so sometimes it's very hard to objectively say, you know, that things have, have improved or, or got worse. Um, and so th- then other proxies get used like uh, fear of crime. A lot of people say that, you know, how how scared a community is of crime is uh, is a good way of measuring how cohesive it is because normally if a, if a community feels more apprehensive or scared, it, it points towards less cohesion. Um, so unfortunately, because there's, you know, not, not many decent measures that are, you know, objective, it becomes a, a subjective exercise. In yeah, I, I appreciate it. it is very subjective. You've got the fear of crime and which isn't a crime itself, but but uh, it's a reaction to possible crime. Um, yeah. you're, yourselves, I mean, are you, are you as busy as ever? But I, I guess you're probably more busy on the proactive side now, are you? Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, in terms of when we try to make our communities, um, you know, safer, more cohesive, we do youth work and when we do youth work, what we find is that there's a lot of young people with high levels of need. And when you start supporting those young people, that that again opens up more avenues of work. So uh, an example of that would be 
2014 when we when we found that actually a lot of the young people that we were working with around cohesion and violence a lot of them were caring for people in their lives so the it was um we found that a lot of the young people um had a, a relative with an illness a disability an addiction and they just weren't getting the support that they needed so we decided to start Slough Young Carers and um, that's a, a big part of our work now. We've oh, got wow. young people from five years old um, up until 18 that we're supporting who have a, a caring responsibility at home. Yes. Um, and so things like that where, you know, just the, the work grows and grows um, yeah. when, you, when you start to try and meet the needs of, of young people in the community. There's a, lo- a lot of different things that you're doing by the sound of it. Um with social media and the use of social media by teenagers, is, does that play much? What sort of impact does that have on their lives? Well, it, has, it has a huge impact. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, the, the work that we began, um, you know, kind of addressing tensions in communities, social media can be really dangerous because uh, it can be used to really give an impression that, um, that something is happening that is completely false. Um, and of course, any content that um, you know depicts uh, violence or racism or you know some uh, perceived persecution can be extremely persuasive. It can evoke really strong reactions. So you know that that's something that's that's become more and more of an issue. Um, and then, of course, you know tensions when they do exist, they can be exacerbated so quickly via social media. Um, Anyone who's been working in education, you know, with young people over the last 20 years, you know, they will rue the dawn of social media because, you know, and mobile phones in general, because, you know, used to be, for example, that, you know, attention could exist in a school and, um, you know, teachers would have a bit of time and space to sort it out. You know, whereas now, like, uh, you know, attention can start to develop and people will be texting and WhatsApping cousins, um, friends, so that, you know, before long at all, uh, that what was initially quite a low level conflict is spilling out and involving relatives and it's escalating and, yeah. and, and all sorts. But, I mean, so that, that's a, an additional, that has become an additional challenge for you. I can see that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, <sighs> Also as well around mental health, because, um, you know, young people being influenced by people with, with views that are quite dangerous. That's yeah. a, that's another issue. But also comparing their lives to, to, you know, one of the things that we do a lot of work on at the moment is mental health. And uh, a lot of the young people that are, you know, that do have really poor mental health is caused by, you know, spending a lot of time online comparing their lives to other people, um, being egged on to, to live a, a less um, a less healthy lifestyle by other people in similar situations. So, you know, it can have a huge impact on, on the welfare of young people. How is the charity funded, Rob? It's funded in a range of ways. Um, it's, um, I think that's been a strength of the organisation in the sense that um, you know, sadly, a lot of other groups that we, we've known over the years that have been doing fantastic work, if, if they're over-reliant on one source of funding and, and that, that funding ends, then it can lead to the end of a project. But we're really lucky in the sense that we have, um, 
a range of ways of being supported. So um, sometimes members of the public um, are, are inspired what we do and donate. Um, there's also grant-making organisations that have supported us in the past. More recently, um, we've been really lucky that um, corporate organisations have, um, have valued what we do. So um, Coca-Cola, for example, are just funding us to, to take on an apprentice. So, wow. so that's, that's huge. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes, um, you know, the local authority will, you know, say, oh, we need a piece of work doing um, all of the NHS and, and commissioners to do that. So, um, yeah, a, a real broad range of ways, really, just to keep us going. So if we've got if we've got any listeners listening who fancy donating in some way, we can put a link on the show notes, Rob. Brilliant, that's great. Thank you. Um, what's your relationship like with the religious organisation, the various religious organisations in Slough? Um, it varies in the sense that um, for some, for I think one of the things that is brilliant about the diversity of our of our faiths is that um for some of them like the the committee that kind of runs that faith organization is is very prominent and um and a, and a first port of call for other um faiths it's the actual faith leader you know um the the priest or the imam or the giani who we might have a relationship with um so it, who we have the relationship with varies from from place of worship to place of worship, but um, certainly uh, we do have a, a good relationship with with the different um, faith institutions. And you know, what, one of the things that we love doing is is exposing young people to those different faith buildings because there's always such a mystique. They're always wondering what goes on, but you know, behind those those doors. Um, one of the projects that I've really enjoyed in recent years is. Is um, northern, there was a youth group um, in Northern Ireland that became aware of, of our work. And one of the things that's happened in Northern Ireland is as the tensions have, have receded between um, Catholics and, and Protestants to some extent, there's been um, uh, much more of an interest in, in other communities. Yes. Um, but Northern Ireland isn't, isn't hugely diverse um, itself. So we've started doing... Um, uh, hosting groups of uh, young people from Northern Ireland to kind of show them about, you know, a, a diverse community on the mainland and, um, you know, taking young people from Northern Ireland to meet um, young people in Slough from our diverse communities and to, and to visit the Gurdwara or visit the mosque and, and to see the impact of those visits has been absolutely fantastic. That was going to be one of my questions, actually, Rob, which was... Um You've got the charity working in Slough. There, I guess there must be other, I mean, you've mentioned there in, in Northern Ireland, but there must be other towns and cities in the UK where you've got, you know, a huge, huge different diverse communities and, and there are tensions. Are there any charities that are similar to yours? And that was the first part of the question. The second part of the question was, do you talk to each other? Yeah, Um I think sadly, I think there used to be more, um, but um, I think over the years, quite a few of them have fallen away. Um, but um, but certainly, you know, we, we've reached out to to different groups over the years and learned from each other. I think one of the things that's really interesting as well is just how important context is and being aware of that, because in in certain parts of 
the UK. So, for example, when um, I went to, you know, where I was studying in Bradford, you know, some of the schools there are, are very much serving either a white British or a, a Kashmiri community. And there's, you know, you know, maybe one or two, you know, big communities. Whereas uh, a Slau school, you know, that we, that we work in might have, say, three young people from white British backgrounds, two Ghanaians, three Somalis, two Polish, you know, really super diverse. And the approach that you take in, in those different contexts has to be completely different. Um, even our, our own work, we were occasionally called out to say work in a school in, in RBWM, the Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead. And we might leave, you know, our context of, of super diversity to go, you know, uh, 10 minutes down the road and be in a context where the classroom is, is 90% white British. And, and then how we approach conversations around uh, diversity and cohesion have to be completely different. Um, but we enjoy kind of learning about how to operate in those different contexts. And you can still make a massive difference in either, really, because, yes. um, you know, there's, there's always there's always work to do. Yeah, I can see how adaptable you have to be. And that must be very interesting for you. Just on the subject of the nitty gritty. So you've got let's paint a picture. You've got two two factions. Um, you've been told that there's a there's a problem between them. There's been a little bit of violence, a lot of um, stuff going on. Could you just describe very briefly how you would work with them? I mean, do, do you get them together? Do you have a talk with them? I mean, you mentioned about the potato, but I guess that's more on the proactive side. But, but you know, 15-year-old group, two groups, 15, say, 15, 16. Can you just paint a picture as to what you would do to work with them, please? Yeah, I mean, uh, as you say, um, you know, seeking to understand the, the solution and, and kind of um, – you know, using different tools to, to sit down. and But a lot, a lot of them is just about, you know, listening to each side of the story and, and things like that. Would you get them in the same room together? Rarely. Um, and the, the reason why that would be is that often, especially when it comes to something that's identity-based, it tends to be one group that can be very cohesive that might be targeting another group. Um, so, for example, uh, we had a group, um, on the edge of Slough that was um, white British and uh, we'd been brought in because they'd been uh, attacking Asian homes. Um, the police couldn't prove precisely who it was within a certain group um, and therefore, you know, the charges hadn't been filed, but they knew that it was, it was this group of young people. Um, so in that respect, there was no a lot of the conflicts that we have are quite asymmetrical in the sense that it's not two groups that are of equal size. It's a group that can be, you know, almost terrorizing another. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in that context, it was a case of working with that, that specific group of, of white British young people about, you know, why they, I mean, the level of ignorance sometimes, you know, and the motivations, um, can be can be huge. So I remember, you know, th- this white British group was saying that, um, you know, one of the reasons why they attacked the Asian homes was because um, they were going to build a mosque and they didn't want one on their street. But the the house they actually attacked was owned by Sikhs, mm. um, which gives you an indication of you yeah. know that you know the the mentality that and and some of the myths that we're trying to address there. And how how did they react to that when when you told them? Uh, 
not always well. I mean, one of the things that's, that's one of the reasons why I think prevention is so much easier than cure is often when people build up a narrative of hate towards another community, it becomes part of who they are. Yeah. So many people define themselves not by who they actually are, but by who they're not. And yeah. um, so, you know, once we start trying to, you know, deconstructing some of the the myths that they believe, actually, you're you're kind of deconstructing who they think they are <laughs> because, you know, that they they've built up this vision of, you know, in their case, like a, a great white Britain where you know the the royal family isn't diverse or that you know fish and chips they think you know has been around since the time of you know the on English shores since the time of Jesus and then you start to explain that you know uh, fried fish and chips was imported by Portuguese Jews and things like <laughs> that and it's not necessarily something that they yeah. they want to hear because it, it kind of conflicts with their vision and I mean I remember one of those boys as, that we worked with in that group was really uh, passionate about um you know the British army and and the second world war and yep. you know that that then dovetails really nicely with some of those other projects uh, I've already mentioned around you know looking at Indian servicemen because you know he, he had a vision of um a second world war that was almost exclusively fought by the you know white British soldiers you know, whereas actually we were able to to show him that you know that's uh, that's a myth. Yeah, you've worked for the charity for twenty years. What, what in in that time? What what are you most proud of? I think it's um I think it's the human capital. Like I couldn't I couldn't point to um, a piece of paper or some bricks and mortar and say, look, we we did that because you know it's um it's not that kind of project, but every. Every week, you know, I'll receive an email um, that will just make me feel like, wow, you know, we, we're on the right lines here and we've done the right thing. Sometimes it's a message from someone who has stumbled across us on social media and said, you know, you came to my school and I just remember that it just had such a big impact on me. Thank you. Um, other times it can be a reference request from someone who's volunteered here and I'm thinking, wow, you know, they've used what they've learned here and, and what we've done as a, as a springboard to as a career into being um you know a, a teacher or or working in community safety or you know the police or, or whatever it is really so um seeing young people that we've worked with go on to to do great things means a, a huge amount to us and um so i guess that's probably our biggest source of pride that's fantastic. It sounds like you derive a great deal of satisfaction from all that, which which is fantastic. And I guess the team do as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got a really, I feel really proud of the team that we've developed here. And, um, you know, it's such a tight knit team. I mean, even, even to the extent that, um, you know, it's a silly example, but um, every day, you know, when it gets around lunchtime, you know, everyone's uh, everyone eats together and catches up, and it, yeah. it really feels like uh, you know a little family. And, and a sort of macro question, really: what what can we as society do? Um, do you think? You know, you've been involved with this now for twenty years. You've seen all sorts of issues, and you, you've resolved many of them. What what do you feel as a wider society we can do, and what we should be aware of? So some of us could live in places like Bromsgrove or Windsor or, you know, Harpenden or somewhere um, where it tends to be fairly white, um, not many, not much uh, diversity. What, what do you, what's your, what's your message for listeners? I think, 
I think there's so much that we can do as a society for for young people in general, and and a lot of those a lot of the issues that young people are facing are cut across all communities. So, I mean, the the level of child poverty in, in the UK and the rate that it's increasing is is really really worrying because. Um, not least because you know young people shouldn't be growing up in these environments, but it means that they're also more susceptible to all of those other challenges um, that we know. You know, once a young person, you know, goes down a route of getting involved in in, in gang activity, uh, drugs, criminal exploitation, you know, it can be so hard to bring those lives back on track and. And, and prevention is so much better than, than cure. But but what often makes a lot of these young people so susceptible is is growing up in poverty. Um, so uh, what cuts across all communities is that, you know, we need to be a lot more supportive of young people. I think also as well, we need to, as a society, we need to get a grip on, on social media and, yeah. and, and the amount of... Um, negative influence young people are coming under online um, because I think that's also having a huge impact on on young people when when we've got a, a mental health epidemic you know we have to look at where that's coming from and I think um, online influences is huge when it comes to cohesion and, and, our, and our different communities I think it's just um you know again education is key and just learning about our you know, different, um, you know, different communities. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, I think one of the the most pernicious and, and horrible kind of things, um, you know, that, you know, I've heard labelled against, um, you know, young people from Pakistani community, for example, is uh, is being called dirty. You know, whereas, you know, if you, if you learn a little bit about the community, you know that, you know, it's a predominantly Muslim community, and, and as part of the faith, you're you know encouraged to pray five times a day. But as part of that prayer process, there's a there's something called wuzu, which means that you you wash yourself so that you're ready to 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 pray. So you know you've got a community that might might be a victim of a racial slur around being dirty that actually washes themselves five, five times, times a day. day. So you know actually just you know giving young people the opportunity to learn about each other, I think is, you know, is, is clear. So I guess yeah. if I was, if there was something for the wider community to do, it would be just to, to make those spaces and, and to encourage young people to, to learn about each other. So um, poverty, social media, learning about each other. Those are the three things which you, you, if you had a magic wand, you, you, you'd wave it. Yeah. Cause I think one of the things that I, one of the things that I get called into a lot of um, schools and youth centres over Bob is a situation where there might be a, a group of um, white young people going, a group of Asian young people going, a, a group of black young people, and those different groups not interacting. And actually, yeah. when you go walk into those rooms, you know you can see that the, the, they're separate. When I speak to those young people and, and try and get a handle on what's going on, there's no um, if, there's no vicious vitriol between them. There's no real hatred, although in a situation where they're not mixing, it is easier to stir that up. But it, it doesn't necessarily need to be there. It can just be that they're 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 not really mixing. And one of the things that um, one of the I try to you know develop our practice, and, and one of the 
the the thinkers that's been quite um, influential in that respect is a is a guy called Thomas Schelling who won the the Nobel Peace Prize, and he used um, checkerboards to to think about segregation between um, communities in America. And what he realized through through maths was that we only need to want the people around us, fifty percent of them, to to be the same as us for eventually complete segregation to take place. And and what the upshot of that was, was that it meant that what you need for an integrated community for for people to mix is just for people to to want to do it, for people to make an effort. So in those communities that we go into where people aren't mixing, the, the message has to be that we're not going to be a cohesive community through osmosis. It's not just going to happen naturally. You, you guys have to proactively try to get to know each other, to understand each other, to be friends, because it's not going to happen by chance, no. because you're naturally going to gravitate sometimes towards people that you feel are more like you, that you're more comfortable with. So, you know, all of us, we just need to make more of an effort. How does sport come into that? Sport is massive. So um, if I took you to uh, the Chalvi area of Slough um, on a Wednesday evening, that's when we run our, our football session. Um, Chalvi, just to, to give some of your listeners some, some context, is, um, is the area with the highest level of, of child poverty um, in Slough and, and probably one of the highest areas of child poverty in the southeast. Um, so a lot of young people living in very difficult circumstances it's also hugely diverse. Um, but if you come down to our, our football session and, and the FA visited it recently and they were just blown away and one of the things that they, they highlighted was just how diverse that group of young people is. Yeah. But they're using football, that universal language, to come together. And, and that universal language is so important because some of the boys that come there, are they don't speak English. Some of the boys are unaccompanied asylum-seeking children that have been through all kinds of trauma. But when we put them on a pitch together with a ball, all you can see is them coming together. Yeah, unity, commonality. Belonging, it's yeah. huge. What about music and art? I mean, have you got any initiatives with those? Yeah. So um, it's, it's interesting because I think one of our key values as youth workers is, is listening to young people. And sometimes it means listening to them even when you don't necessarily think it's a great idea <laughs> and uh, uh, one example of that that always comes to mind is is our um our spoken word project uh, empowered um, okay a, a small group of young people um came up to me one day i think it was there was three or four of them and they said we really want to do a um a spoken word poetry project and i thought to myself who is going to be interested in this though? Like poetry, isn't that like, you know, for, for much older people, I, obviously there's, you know, three or four of you have found each other that want to do this, but I'm sure there's not a wider market for it. And I'm really pleased to say it's one of the wrongest things I've been about, you know, while I've been at the organization because wow. I mean, we, we asked the young people to, to name it and they, they, um, they came up with a, a kind of a pun. It's called empowered. Um, but spell E M P O W O R D. It's on the word, yeah. um, but it's a, it's a spoken word uh, poetry project, and it's um, it's hugely popular with the young people. Um, is it is it sort of connected to rapping? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's great about it is, again, just the, the diversity of the way that you can express yourself through poetry. So some of the young people rap, whereas some of the young people are much more um, kind of like classical poets. We found that if it's um, if it's just kind of poetry and rap, it's, um, you know, it's nice to break it up sometimes with some musical performances. So that comes into it. Yeah. But what we found is that, you know, when young people um you know were were writing poetry or raps they were really sharing their experiences with each other so again you've got an engine for cohesion in in the community but more broadly than that what we found is that suddenly the number of people who were interested in getting involved was going up and the age group was getting more and more wide so what we started to say was that this was a poetry uh project this was a project that was for the whole community, but powered by young people. Um, and now I think our oldest performer is in his 70s. Um, that's, brilliant. that's fantastic, fantastic stuff, Rob. It's, it's, it's really good. I mean, I can't believe, well, I can believe, but I mean, the amount of different initiatives that you've got going, um, which is obviously being driven by you, but actually, you know, it, it's the young people putting it together. is It's absolutely fantastic. Um, so if we've got any listeners or anybody that we know who or listener might know somebody who's thinking of coming in to be a youth worker, what, what advice would you give them? Uh, buckle up. Because, <laughs> uh, no, um, I would say, uh, you know, um, I'm half joking really, but I think it is such a, a thrilling um, experience being a youth worker. Um, you know, the, the the experiences that you can have working with young people um there's uh you know you can expect to spend a lot of time laughing a lot of time crying or feeling like you want to cry um and everything in between um i mean just working with young people um in the community you're you're kind of you've got to open yourself up to all of the experiences that that they're going through and, and supporting them through that and you know, sometimes it can just, you know, it can really just fill you with, you know, so much um, happiness to to see them thriving. But you also have, you know, the the, the counter the the counter side of that, you know, the the despair when things don't, you know, go particularly well. I mean, just just last night, um, a young person visited me for the first time after he's been, you know, released from from prison, and you know, we're going to be you know, trying to rebuild his life, but yeah, just the, the despair I felt when, you know, when he, um, you know, when he, well, got sent to prison. Um, but, you know, now we start to, we go again and we rebuild. And I think, um, you know, I think doing youth work in, in all its various forms, it's such a wonderful, um, diverse field. Unfortunately, one of the things that there is a challenge with it is that it's sometimes it's very hard to, to prove the impact of it because, you know, a lot of the time it's not an overnight um, success. And, you know, some of the young people that we, we work with to get to a, to a good place, it takes years and obviously funding cycles and, and ways of measuring things you know, they're not built for, for years and, and the life's journey. I always think of that um, Lloyd's TSB um, slogan for the journey because I think, you know, that that's what youth work is. But, uh, yeah. you know, it, it does bring its challenges. So, yeah, yeah, I guess if I was talking to someone who was at the start of their career, I would, you know, I would say, you know, congratulations. You've chosen a really exciting field to, to go into. 
It sounds ever so worthwhile. And if we've got any listeners in, in the Slough area or, or just around about Slough and they'd like to become involved with your charity, what should they do? I think the first thing to do is, is reflect on what you want to bring to it. Um, so um, I think uh, I think even beyond, you know, Together as One, there's, there's a huge number of organisations out there that are looking for support um, and everyone's got something to give. Um, and I think, you know, so for example, if, you know, if there's anyone out there that's, that's great with numbers, you might, they might be thinking to themselves, well, you know, what, how could a youth work charity use my skills? But actually, you know, we, we do a lot of work with young people around, you know, transferable skills in, in IT and Excel. And but also there's a lot of the groups, we, you know, we need support, you know, balancing our books and, and, and things like that. So if you've got a skill set, I'm pretty sure that there's there's a group like ours that need it. So, well, yeah, I, know, I was just thinking if somebody if somebody's got say a sales or a marketing background, perhaps they could get involved with fundraising. Absolutely, or, or even just helping the, the groups to to spread their word, you know, yeah. around what they're doing and raise awareness because. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the groups are very, very savvy around social media, for example, whereas some of the others, you know, they're incredible at, at doing that work face to face with, you know, vulnerable communities, but but not so good at, at promoting it. So, yeah, lots of different needs out there. Yeah. Well, we've, we've it's been a great conversation. We, we've obviously spoken a lot about what you're doing for society and the, and the local community what what do you do in your spare time to unwind you must be like a, a wound up spring at the end of the day <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right bob uh there's a lot i mean one of the things that i really uh you know enjoy doing is um is getting into nature and it's funny when when people hear that you live in Slough, they don't necessarily think that um that you'll be very close to it but I, li- I live in the Britwell area, which has got um, Bluebell Woods and Burnham Beaches on its doorstep. So I like to go walking up there. And um, I'm also very keen on uh, keeping chickens. So I've got some of those that are, are very relaxing. Um, and uh, and also uh, for my sins, I'm an avid Aston Villa fan. So ah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I do follow the villa as well as a way of uh, relaxing. We better leave it there with football, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been a really interesting conversation, Rob. I mean, I, I found it particularly um, mind. Oh, oh, it's opened my mind, should we say? And, and I'm sure it will have done for listeners. It's been inspirational with some of the stuff that you're doing. My guest today has been Rob Deeks. He's the CEO of Together as One, which is a youth-led charity bringing communities together as one through training, youth work, and creative projects. And a link of which can be found on the show notes. Thank you for coming on the show, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I will be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best. 